Okay, so apocalyptic, understanding apocalyptic literature. Uh, first thing, we're going to have three topics. Apocalyptic as a literary genre. This is really going to be important to understand this. Imagine somebody who's from Borneo and coming here to visit us or something, comes from, you know, is coming into the world, has never seen science fiction. And you say, what is this? I mean, imagine somebody who never has no conception of science fiction, seeing something like The Matrix or something. And they have no clue as to what's going on. I don't get this. Is this real? You know, I, I've seen airplanes with my eyes. I haven't seen that. Is it supposed to, you know, it's really confusing. We have sort of, it's a genre. There are certain things we have in it that we all learn. There are certain things we learn when we read science fiction to understand how it works. There are elements of the real. There are elements that are meant to be um, fantastic, you know, uh, about it. And so we're going to talk about it specifically. This was a very popular literary genre. And it started after the Babylonian exile, big time. Uh, there are a lot of great Jewish works in apocalyptic, the Dead Sea Scrolls, big time, and the things that are in the Bible manuscripts are, whoa, are big time apocalyptic. And we have a number of Christian apocalypses, you know, Christian apocrypha. There's a lot of, of, of gospels and acts and revelations of, again, the claim to be by the prophets and things, the whole books of them. And this is, this is a very big genre at the time. So it's like, imagine if science fiction disappeared. We never had it anymore. And you had to explain to people when you're reading back this, it had rules to it. Everybody knew how it worked. So we want to read it in context. We read the Bible, we want to make sure we read it as it was meant to be written, read. Like poetry is not prose. You know, so it's very real. That's not the issue at all. I'm really a pretty conservative Bible guy. But, you know, but I'm saying that we have to make sure that we're not putting in something we have to understand. If Job talks about 10,000 stars, it's poetry. You know, it's not meant to be a statement. So it's just so we understand properly. We're going to talk about the language of symbols. There's a regular language everybody knew. There are certain conventions. For example, just think of regular films. Is how do we show, if you've never seen movies before, again, you're from this, this from Borneo, and you're taking out, you're seeing your first movie, and suddenly you see the screen is starting to get a little uh, fuzzy. And you say, oh, it must be a technical problem. Say, what is that? We know that that's one of the signs that I'm going back in my mind, that this is what somebody's thinking. We know that's a convention we have, but nobody who's not been told that would figure that out. We all have raised it, oh, that means it's a dream. Or they're you know, thinking that's, oh, duh. Okay, we're gonna learn the language of symbols. <clears throat> we're gonna talk a lot very specifically about the Revelation to John, you know, the book of Revelation. Okay, with that, let's start, first of all, with the apocalypse as a literary genre. And the terminology, the, the actual word of the Book of Revelation, the Greek word, is apocalypsis. You know, it's apocalypse. And what that simply means in both Latin and Greek, apocalypse is Greek, Latin is Revelation. It's, again, we get revealed. It's basically, like, the reason I have curtains in the ark, you mean pull back, you can see what's behind. So the main theme, is you pull back the curtain so you can see the sort of like what happens when you're red pilled in the in the Matrix. The idea that suddenly you see everything, you you get oh duh, that's what's going on is the idea. So the whole thing of about apocalypse is things appear to be this way, but here's what's really going on. We're pulling back the curtain. That's the notion. Even the word apocalypse uses is like to sort of uncover, unveil is what they literally mean. Literally, I don't the unveil. Uh, you know, pulling back. So, it's a unique literary genre, and we said that the best examples, we have many examples in the Bible, the best examples are Daniel 7 through 12, and of course the book of Revelation, or the Apocalypse, it's also, that's, a lot of Bible calls it the Apocalypse, uh, you know, is, is there. But we also have examples in Zechariah, you know, we have uh, 
examples of visions Isaiah, Ezekiel. Uh, there are a number of places that, uh, that we have apocalypses. You know. In Jesus, we have apocalypse when Jesus is talking about the Mount Olivet Discourse. Is we have an apocalypse there. It was very widespread use to get from after the Babylonian exile. It really took off through early Christian times. We have a lot of Christian apocalypses. I have a book of, you know, all these Gospels of Peter, this kind of thing, Acts of Peter thing. There are a lot of them. Okay. It's very popular. What are the characteristics of apocalypse? Well, what we have here is it's normally enigmatic visions. People have, it's often we see something. Like we talk like in Isaiah, he sees heaven. He goes into the court of heaven. You know, uh, Ezekiel, he's in the court of heaven. And we have the same, no, no acts, and we have it in, in um, uh, we have it in a, a Revelation too. You know, here's the heaven. We're going up into heaven. We have visions. And the main theme of an apocalypse, why people loved it, it's the idea, in theology, we have something called theodicy. You know what that means? Is how do we deal with the fact we have a good God and there's evil in the world? It's actually a branch of theology called theodicy. How do we explain the problem of pain, the problem of evil in the world? And that's what th these do, is basically, it's normally, is all about the justice of God. So apocalypse is normally about, it looks like, it looks bad, but actually we're winning. It's about good, big good versus evil. That's why I have uh, you know Michael slaying the dragon. You know, good versus evil. And it's both pessimistic and optimistic. Pessimistic in the sense that, yeah, some bad things are going to happen. It's saying, we're not just saying, oh, everything's going to be sweet and rosy. But wait, despite those bad things, actually, they're good things happening. Despite this, that's the basic theme of apocalypses that you get. Is you have these visions, and they're about good and evil, the triumph of good over evil, typically. Not always, like we sometimes have portions. But, you know, but very often if you have extended apocalypse, almost always it's good and evil. And we have normally combined in sense that bad's going to happen or is happening now. Like think of Daniel thinks, but this is not the end of the story. There's going to be more to it than this. Now, use of images. Now, one thing we should talk about, the technical term I'll tell you if you don't know, is oniric. That's from the Greek word for dream. Is think of when you dream. And by the way, it really changes when you get older too. The older you get. When you start having people who died on you and things like this, you start having in dreams, they have a, they're an alternative reality. Things that you start know in a dream, that this is natural here, but it would never happen in real life. There are dead people. I mean, I'm an old man. And things. So there are people like kids I know, boy, they're long dead, this kind of thing like this. You see people coming in, and it seems perfectly normal they're there. People have never met each other. You know, somehow you, you're, you're mixing all sorts of things together. It has its own logic. A dream has its own logic. Whereas we'd say, prosaic terms, well, President Washington can't be shaking hands, you know, with President Lincoln, right? We say that's that's anachronistic, but these things happen all the time, right? In a dream, anything can happen, so it's very dreamlike. Okay, in a very they make they make sense, but in a non-linear way, they're very non. We have a very, especially in uh, from our Greek backgrounds, you know, in the West, we have a very linear way of seeing things, uh, and this is very non-linear. And also, they like verbal images. Sometimes they just like when a kid's talking about things, uh, giving a description. Sometimes what they're doing, they're just playing with the words. They say, "How many? How many kids were there? Like a gazillion." <laughs> now that's not. And you say, "Well, how many with that?" No, it's simply you know, say, "Whoa, there were a lot." That's the idea. It's just meant. It's a wordplay. You know, saying, "Whoa, it's like this." You know, uh, how tall was he? He's like a giraffe. You know, this kind of thing. Is people the story of my life. Okay, but, <laughs> but but you get the idea that we often, we can play with our word images too, where the fun thing is play with the words. 
you're trying to tell something about them, but it's just a, sometimes you're playing with the image. You're actually asking people to see something. Sometimes these things are impossible to see. If you actually try to draw the picture, it's not going to. It's going to look crazy. It's meant to be sort of a word thing. Imagine they have this, you know. And so we have those two different types of images. How do we understand them? The biggest thing is, like, is the biggest thing is, don't get, don't get, don't miss the forest for the trees. Our temptation is dig into the individual. No, no. The idea is get the overall effect. That's the number one thing. Do not get lost. Some people say, I want to find out what all this means, then I'll look back. No, no. It's like a painting. If you get really up close, you're seeing all the brush strokes, which is helpful. But you can't see the painting. You see a real art critic stand back. So the first thing you should do is just take it in. Just take it in. It's like when you teach foreign language. You tell people their troubles, they want to like translate it to go along. Say, no, no, you just have to take in the sentence. Just listen to it all. Then you can do it. But if you try to start, you know, things are different in foreign languages, so you take it in. Okay, don't get lost in the details. Now let's give some examples of verbal imagery. Okay, the things that probably weren't meant really to be seen as such, but more of uh, plays on words. We have the four living creatures in Ezekiel and the four living creatures in Revelation. And notice, something they tell us something, they don't look the same. Uh, <laughs> they're similarities, they're clearly meant to be the same, but you know, the idea is we're playing with, with facts of them, they're these four creatures. So let's look at the, uh, the description of Ezekiel. Okay. From the midst of it came a likeness of four living creatures. This was their appearance. They had a human likeness, but each had four faces. Notice something. Unlike Revelation, where we have four beasts, each one a different number, each one has four faces. A lot of people miss that, because they, they mix the two visions up. They each have four, we're going to see a picture of four faces. Each of them had four wings. We're going to find out, we'll tell why. There are six in Revelation, not four. Okay. Their legs were straight. The soles of their feet were like the soles of a calf's, uh, calf's foot. They were sparkled like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, they had human hands, and the four had their faces and their wings thus. Their wings touched one another. As for the likeness of their faces, each had a human face. The four had the face of a lion on the right side, the face of an ox on the left side, and the four had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. Now just try to picture that. Well, let me help you. Da 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 da. Okay. So it would be something like this, <laughs> except we can't see the hands, can we, because of the, uh, the four wings. And there would be four of these. You know, there be four of these uh, going around. So what does it mean? The meaning is the qualities. When we look at the faces, there's three qualities. Human quality is intelligence. So it's meant to be there. You know, human, the one thing we really have in everyone else is intelligence despite all the contrary evidence. Okay, <laughs> humans have intelligence, okay. Ox is famous for strength. An ox that you plow a field with, an ox really had to be strong. Okay, an eagle was mobility. They just fly, they go where they will, and they have great speeds. And a lion is courage. So what we're really saying about these creatures, we're trying to say, like a kid saying, well, it's like a lion, if it is saying, well, you know, the, the intelligence, strength, mobility, courage, they got everything, all these features do. Okay, and notice we have, the four, we have the four forms of life. We have human life. We have domesticated animals, the highest form of domesticated animals in ox, according to the ancient world, okay. The wildest animals, uh, wild animals in the form of a lion. You know, you can't tame lions in the ancient world, okay. They didn't have circuses that way. Okay, and birds. 
the highest form of a bird is because the eagle is on top of all the birds. So it's like it combines all the forms of life and all these virtues, intelligence, strength, courage, and mobility. So that's really the image of saying, so it's more than saying, here's what they actually look like, it's saying they have these creatures and they have everything. I mean, they're just in a whole different level. Is that is, we're playing words. Again, the image is not terribly attractive. Okay. Now, what about the four living creatures in Revelation? With their full of eyes, this is something new, in the front and behind, so they have eyes everywhere. The first living creature is like a lion. Ah, we're gonna divide them, we're gonna have different one face per creature. Okay, the second living creature is like an ox. The third is like a man. The fourth is like an eagle. The four living creatures, each of them with six wings and full of eyes all around and within. Mention the eyes twice. Okay, so let me, you're gonna love this. Here we, ah, no, uh, I went too fast. Oh, oh, wait, I'm sorry, I went the wrong way. Excuse me. There they are. Except they didn't do a very good job on the eyes. What they try to do with the eyes is if, you, if I had a better focus here, see these? These are supposed to be eyes in the end, like a peacock feather. But they're supposed to be covered with eyes. You see, it's impossible to draw. If you tried to do that, imagine how bizarre that would be. Okay. Uh, so here we have the four living creatures. And let's make a comparison here, the meaning. Same as Ezekiel. They're the same four creatures. Except what we're talking about them is saying unceasing watchfulness. That's the idea of the eyes. You don't really, it's like when you're out here, you talk about your mom, she has eyes in the back of her head. You know, what we mean by that is she sees everything. Nothing pass, gets past this woman. Every, my mom was like that. She's glorious, but it's nothing got past that woman. <laughs> okay. You know, you couldn't get away with anything. Okay, six wings, why four wings? Because in a, a, later on we came to have the cherubim are under God and the seraphim are on top. Okay? And the seraphim have six wings and the, and, and the, uh, the uh, cherubim uh, have four. Now, we're told here, Isaiah's vision says, says that they're tied, we have seraphim. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. So he's trying to associate these with the seraphim. Ezekiel said his four creatures were actually cherubim. He says that. He says, there were four living creatures I saw underneath the God of Israel by the Chebar canal, and I knew that they were cherubim. So we have four creatures, but Ezekiel's saying, well, they're cherubim. You know, meaning they're the ones who hold up everything right there in the ark. You know, they're, they're basically in. And then the seraphim flies above his head. It's an image, you know, a powerful image. Now, some people might try to reconcile. They say, well, you know, but they're missing the point of apocalyptic literature. It is saying, well, we have eight creatures because we have four here. We'll find out. The meaning four is a special number. We'll talk about that later, what four means. It means something like four. Okay. Now let's talk an example of visual imagery, something designed to see, and this is meant to be, so it doesn't go, it's, we have the four horsemen of Revelation. The first horse is, I looked and behold a white horse. Its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him and he came out conquering and to conquer. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that the people should slay one another. He was given a great sword. The, the, so I looked and behold a black horse and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand and I heard what seemed to be the voice from the midst of the four living creatures saying a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius by the way that's a huge price okay okay finally pale and I looked and behold a pale horse and its rider's name was death and Hades followed him 
They were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine, with pestilence, and by the wild beasts of the earth. So this is meant to be a very powerful vision. We have a lot of this in Western art of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, the four horsemen of Revelation. Because this is something you really can see. You don't see much people aren't very fascinated with four living creatures, right? Because they're not, they're not very good pictures to make. They're really talking, you know, but this is meant to be a visual image. It's a really powerful visual image going forward. And what's the meaning of the image? White horse is expanding kingdoms. Okay, red horse, that means the, you know, the, the, the victorious side of the war. Red is the bad side of the war, you know, the war itself, the actual blood and these kind of things. The black horse is famine. They, all, they go together, right? Uh, typically in the ancient world, one of the worst things about wars is they interrupted uh, regular agriculture. So they resulted, you know, this kind of thing. So we would often have famine as a result. Like in the Thirty Years' War, it got so bad that people stopped planting in parts of Germany. They just gave up. You know, the fields would be trampled and things. And a pale horse is epidemic. When people, what happens when people uh, don't eat enough? They're subject to disease. Big time. They typhus, these kind of things. So those are the meanings. So let's talk about the language of symbols. Okay? One thing really big in the Jewish world was numbers. Big time. And part of that came uh, because, well, for example, uh, numbers in the Hebrew alphabet were also, le uh, letters were numbers. So number one, Aleph was one, Beth uh, was two, etc. And so everybody could tell, like some people, you know, with uh, with, uh, with popular astrology, you could be able to believe, and everybody knows what their, knows what their sign is, because everybody has heard something with their sign is. Well, every Jew knew the number of their name. You, know, you could tell if you added up the numbers. By the way, we'll talk about Matthew and the four Gospels. I'm going to tell you a little secret here. Why does he keep going about 14? Remember, he says, no, 14, 14 is the number of the name David. I'll show you when we do Matthew. So everyone knew that as this number. It's like, see, look, it's all over the place that this is the son of David. 14, 14, 14. Did you hear mention 14? He even says at the end. Did I, you know, notice there are 14. So he's, it's every Jew knows, oh, 14, everyone knows that's the number of David. That's your lucky number, so to speak. You know, that's your number if you're David. Because you add up the numbers, that's your name. So what are, so let's start with numbers, then colors, then objects, okay? Number four is like we have is the four corners of the earth, we would say, you know, like the four directions, north, south, east, and west. That's why we have four living creatures. It means they, their scope encompasses the whole world. Four is the number of the whole world, okay? And like we have, that's why we have four corners of the earth, four winds of the earth, this is from Revelation. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth holding back the four winds of the earth. So we see four, we know it's something to do with the whole world, everything, not just here, north, south, east, west. Okay. The next thing we have is the number seven. The number seven was the number for fullness. It means you have exactly what you need. You have every, you're not missing anything. Seven means we've got it all. We've, you have it. So seven has a special meaning throughout the Bible. Seven means fullness. So we have, why, so we talk about seven churches. So me saying this is a really good sample. He's basically saying this is really covering churches. <laughs> it's not GC7, it's bigger than the seven churches. This is churches, you know, this is all the churches you're going to write into, basically. Okay. I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes and the seven spirits of God sent out into all the, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the world. Okay, I saw a so we don't have to worry about any others, do we? The seven spirits are sort of telling us we've got them here. 
Okay. Then I saw seven angels who stand before God, with seven trumpets were given to them. Okay, another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and seven diadems. He has the ten horns. That's another story. Uh, but seven diadems. So seven is a regular number. Continues here. The seven angels hold seven golden bowls. There are seven plagues that go with the seven angels. Uh, we have the woman of the, uh, sitting on the beast has seven head, uh, ha the beast has seven heads and represents seven kings. So you get the idea. So seven means we're not missing anything. You got it right here. You got everything you need right here. That's why by the number, the number six is incompleteness when it comes up. You know, think something's missing. For example, when Jesus is the miracle of Cana, how many jugs are there uh, for water? Notice they're empty, but there's six jugs. So it's trying to say something about the law. Not only is it running on empty right now that they have to put the water in to change it to wine, it's not there. They mentioned they had to fill them with water. But also, you know, even if a word is not going to be good enough, you know, something's missing. Although they're huge jars, three gallons apiece. Okay. But if you know the number codes, you'd realize it. That's, there are all sorts of ways people come up with 666 in Revelation, like Euro Caesarean, Greek, the numbers would add up to that. But I think, you know, also basic things, you have to say, if you want to say, Things being wrong, fundamentally deficient. Six, six, six is like saying, "Dude, <laughs> like really, really, something's wrong." Okay, three and a half. This is tied to seven. Something you might wonder: Oh, you have three and a half days, right, or three and a half years? What does that have to do with what is trying to say a whole lot, but not the majority? <laughs> it's trying. How do you say that a whole lot of people were affected? Like we're talking about COVID now, but not everybody. You know, or not even most everybody. You know, basically a whole lot, but not everybody. And so the number here is like, you know, here is, means a limited portion, a significant but limited portion. And so we have in Revelation, for three and a half days, some of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. So it's going to be a while. Okay, uh, another one, but after these three and a half days, a breath of life God has it. So it means a, 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 a significant period, a limited period of time. Now, what about 1,260? Uh, 1, well, remember that in the Jewish calendar, we only have, we have every month has 30 days. You have leap months in, in the Jewish calendar. You don't have some days of 31, etc. So 12 months times 30 days times three and a half years is 1,260. So simply playing on the fact that this is three and a half years. And three and a half means a long time, substantial, but not anywhere near the whole time. Substantial. I will grant authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1,260 uh, days, clothed in sacrifice. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,200. It simply means a, a, a limited portion, period of time. It's not forever. It's a limited, but significant, limited portion of time. Now, what is one-third? Well, a lot of things you can count, and some things you can't count, like water and things. And so we use a third when we're talking about things that you can't count. Like in English, people speak English carefully, you're told uh, is much versus many or you know a type of thing is you're told that's the difference between them you, you can count now here we sometimes if you look at this we look at all those thirds a third of the trees a third of the living trees you say well I can count some of those but they wanted to emphasize the repeating 
And you can't do that when some things can't be counted. So that's why they use a third for everything. But they have a third of the waters, you know, a, th a third of, uh, you know, a, a third of the, of, the, uh, of the light of the sun, a third of the light of the moon. So it's meant to be, again, a, basically a significant portion is one third. A significant portion. But by no means anything is significant less than less than half. Okay. Twelve is the number of Israel, the twelve tribes of Israel. And that's why when we're talking about the woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet in Revelation, she had a crown with 12 stars. The church is the new Israel. The woman is the church, and the church is the new Israel, and the 12 stars. You know, for Israel. 12 is always the number of Israel. On a great hall with 12 gates, and at the gates 12 angels, and the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. Okay. The wall of the city had 12 foundations. And on them, the 12 names of the 12 apostles. Why 12 apostles? Because they represent the new Israel. You know, it's the 12 apostles. And the 12 gates were 12 pearls. So you get the idea of 12 is Israel. Now, what about 24 is, the, is if we take the tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles to show the fullness, that's where you get 24 elders. Like in the gates of the new Jerusalem, we have... The gates are named, and there are 12 gates for the tribes of Israel, but there are 12 foundation stones for the wall with the apostles. So it's trying to emphasize how old and new come together. You know, we take, we're not limiting, the old and the new is the fulfillment of all of this come together. So that's 24. Why 24 elders? It means Israel and the greater Israel. Okay. So you can see that here. Example of 24 thrones with the 24 elders. What's 1,000? It's a large number. Like, I think you know this is an apocalyptic, but you know 40, uh, 40 years is, is, is the uh, round number for a generation. For you to grow up and have children, for them to grow up and have children. You know, 40 years. You know, 20, yeah, 40 years. Okay, is the, uh, 40 uh, years is the round period of time, uh, you know, for instead of a month, simply saying, a long time. So like we say, 40 years in the desert, man, but that's not apocalyptic. The number all means something. Okay. Okay, so a thousand years is simply saying a really long time. That's all. A thousand something means a really long time. Now we say some in apocalyptic you like to really go wild. So we we also can combine a thousand with a number, another number, uh, another number. Like here we have why are there seven thousand people killed in the earthquake? It means not just it's a whole lot, a thousand, but seven means a number of completion. Wow, it's like just everybody, you know, it's, it's the idea of completion. Uh, so the seven combined with thousand, you get both, you combine both ideas together. <coughs> then we have myriad. Myriad is a Greek word. There's a special Greek word meaning, um, uh, meaning 10,000. Myriad in Greek means 10,000. And they love that word. It's sort of like in American English, uh, people use the word billion for 10 million. That's not the real meaning of billion. Uh, you know, that, that's an Americanism. You know, that's, you know that's, in Britain, you know, they do the, the, the action. There's a, I can explain mathematically why that's the case. But Americans want to have a word for a, million, so that, for a billion, so they put that. That's not actually what it is. It's based on the multiples. So in any event here, so if you really want to say, wow, a thousand means a big number. If you want to say beyond calculation is a myriad. I mean, and like 10,000 times 10,000, like you could say gazillion. Myriads are myriads. Twice 10,000 times 10,000, you know, that kind of thing. So the idea here is, 
whoa, you know, gazillion is the idea. <laughs> Just everywhere. Okay. And what's 144,000? Well, if we're talking about Israel, remember in the book of Revelation, it has, first we have the 144,000, then we have all these people behind them. You know, I, no one could count. Well, if 12 is the number of Israel, fullness would be 12 times 12 times 1,000 each time. is like saying huge numbers of Israel. I mean, everything you can want for 12 times 12. I mean, Jesus, how often do we forgive someone? 70 times 7. So he's saying like, you know, 12 times 12 times 1,000 times 1,000. You know, it's like that saying, wow, nothing's missing. The fullness of Israel, 144,000. The fullness. Because it says 12,000 out of this tribe, 12,000 out of that tribe. It actually gives us a list of things. 144,000. Then it says, I saw behind them a crowd which no man could number. You know. Okay. Now let's talk about colors. Some are obvious to us, but we still have them. Some are going to be less obvious, or one's going to be less obvious. White means several things. We think of purity and things. Um, why we think of that, by the way, is simply because white, anyone knows when you buy white clothing and things, you don't buy it for children. Right? Because it shows dirt. You know, so if you have white, it's the riot white became associated everywhere with purity is because if you have any dirt, you'd see it. You know, so white is, it doesn't hide anything. Okay. So we have, it's victory also. In the ancient world, it means victory. So white is not just like that. Remember the, the conqueror of the horse is wearing white, which is the color of victory. Okay. It's also a color of purity, divinity, because God is pure and powerful. Okay. Dignity. You know, uh, you know, that's a gravitas. Okay. And resurrection. All of those. Now, here's some examples from Revelation. His hair, the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. Okay. The one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden man, and I will give him a white stone. Okay. He will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. And we have some more here. The one who conquers will be clothed less in white garments. Again, the idea of purity. Around uh, uh, with, washed in the blood of the Lamb, washed. Okay. And the irony, of course, washing something in red, if there's one thing that doesn't come out, it's blood. You know, is, you know, but it's white, white as snow. You know. Like in Isaiah, it says, although your sins be crimson, you know, they'll be white as snow. Okay. Around the thrones, there are 24 elders. What a surprise, they're wearing white. Because holiness, they're in the presence of God, who is white. Remember, holiness, I think I explained to you the concept of that's really an important concept. Because only God's holy. Holiness means the, the characteristic unique to God. It's like being a fire. Fire, fire creates warmth and light. So if you're near the fire, you feel the warmth. You take out. If you're near a fire, you're going to be, be warm and you're going to see light. So that's why your people close to God are going to be in white. Because it's, like, it's just showing that you can't be near God without taking on this holiness. It's reflected in this. Okay, and I looked and I saw a white horse, victory. You know, he says, and it's rider had a bow and a crown given to him, and he went out conquering, to conquer. Okay. Victory. That's why white is the color of resurrection. It's not just, it's, it's victory. Okay. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud. We have a white cloud. We also have armies of heaven arrayed in fine, white, fine linen, white and pure, following him on white horses, a great white throne. You get the drill. <laughs> okay. So white's pretty easy for us. What about red? Red means violence or bloody power. Not to, you know, so, uh, uh, you know, so this is you know, the color of war, the color of blood. Easy enough. And so some examples we have here. 
Out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. Look about the red dragon. The one who follows the woman, he wants to devour the child. You know, red means bad news, in the sense of death, you know, violent death. Now, black is death generically, whether it's violent or not, is death generically. It's also impiety. If white is the color of holiness, what's the absence of white? The absence of color is black. You know, it's black. Disaster. You know, we talk about the sun being darkened at noon in Amos, being darkened at noon. Or distress. So, you know, you know, I don't know which way I'm going. It's black. And here's the one that throws people, uh, give some examples here from Revelation. The black horse, which is famine, the famine that follows war in this particular case. It's associated with death, but again, in the ancient world, the first people thought, think, people thought of it, they thought of war, is actually not many of that people, civilians, were killed in war. Yeah, they had very small army, but it really affected food supplies. Not to mention the armies lived off the land. They fed themselves from your food. Okay? Uh, so after you have a war, you're going to have famine. People are going to go hungry. Okay? And other, the sun became black as sackcloth, and the full moon like blood. Okay. And here's the one purple is debauchery. Uh, you know, so actually, the scarlet or purple is the color, not to be confused with red, is the color of debauchery, okay? Sexual immorality. So examples, we have, notice here, the great prostitute committed sexual immorality, uh, who seed up any waters, uh, with the wine of those sexual immorality, the woman's arrayed in purple and scarlet. So it keeps saying, mother of prostitutes, you know, etc. Uh, so that's the idea. So, you know, scarlet, uh, you know, scarlet and purple are the colors of you know sexual immorality. Okay. And last, for the great city, it was clothed in fine linen, in purple and scarlet. What we know right away there is we think, well, um, those two, that together tells us it's more than that they were. The people say, well, purple itself for the Romans, purple was made from a very uh, small little Mediterranean creature, which I think has been wiped out from the Jews. But they used a special dye, which was extremely expensive to make. And so that's why purple was the color of kings, was the color of the emperor and things. But there, so there's an element here, but really, biblically, when you say purple is scarlet, you're talking about immorality. It means ridiculous luxury. I mean, that's where you get the immorality part. Ridiculous luxury. That leads, we typically associate with sexual immorality. People go for broke. Like we think of drunkenness, and think often goes to sexual immorality. Okay. Now, what about some objects? Let's go through some objects that have things. This Sunday, sort of horns are a symbol of power in the Bible. And they come from the idea of the horns of an animal. But notice an altar, there's an altar with horns on the altar. We're symbolic of power. So when it says lift up your horn, it means it basically increase your power. Like it says in the Psalms, the mysterious things. You know, so lift up your horn stands for power, raw power. That's why they have the symbol of horns on the altar, the corners of the altar. White hair doesn't mean, remember, in, the, in ancient society, something was radically different from, from uh, let me explain something about ancient world until we're actually really Normally, old people were particularly valuable because since technology and things didn't change, they had the most experience, it was all relevant. And so they really, it was not that people just honored the old, the old people really had a lot of good stuff to share. We live in a thing where it's exactly the opposite. Young people, you know, right now, you choose a doctor, 
I have a son and brother who are doctors, and they, you normally try to choose someone younger right out of medical school because things so change with technology and things. You say, I don't want somebody who's been out there 20 years, and I said, I want actually somebody closer. <laughs> you know, so in the ancient world, white was, old age was actually a nice, except for dying, it was actually a pretty nice place. People respected the elders they were given, they were given, that's, you know, they were assumed as the natural leaders and things. And so it symbolizes agelessness, not age. That's why we have the, the, the in, well, we have, you know, God is the, in the, the, um, the uh, what am I trying to think, in Daniel, what do we call it? Uh, Ancient of Days. Ancient of Days. It, we told he has white hair. It doesn't mean he's really old. It means basically uh, immortality beyond age. You know, but this perfect thing of being everything, all this, this font of wisdom and things. Long robe was priestly dignity. So if we see someone mentioning their robe or something, it's a good idea that it's, uh, Priestly, uh, priestly dignity. A girdle, this is an act of Christ here, is uh, these, uh, you know, were a symbol of, uh, of, of, of power, of the royal power. They would wear these decorative girdles, which is just how they do it. In Africa, they do this too. Uh, we don't have that custom of people having this kind of thing, but they, they can really decorate these. It's a nice place. The closest thing I can think of, if you go to Texas, Southern people have these super belt buckles. You know, specialized things, it's like that. But for them, or for bikers and things, this is really a big way to a place to put jewelry or something. Show show off, or like when you have a, in boxing championships, they have they have a belt they uh, they put on like that. So that in the ancient world, that was common. You'd have these kind of uh, things. And this, this girdle, so a royal girdle, was a symbol of you know of power. Okay, like a sash. It's really how they would wear a sash. Okay, goats are the wicked. Okay, they cause a lot of hassle. Whereas sheep, of course, are the people. And the abyss is the source of evil, right? That's the, the abyss. The, why? Because it's the opposite of heaven. And one thing I should tell you as English speakers, that you have to understand in most other languages, <laughs> is in most other languages, the word for heaven is the word for sky. There is no difference. In Latin, uh, you know, kylum, in classical language, you know, like, simply means the sky. It also means heaven, but they're the same word. You know, like, the ciel in French is our word means heaven, but it also means the skies. There's no other way to say the sky. When I say you know, I look at the ciel, it doesn't mean I was looking up into heaven. It means I'm looking at the sky. You know, I saw a plane. You know, so it has an ambiguity. In English, we tend to think of heaven. We don't say. I don't say. What were you doing this afternoon? I was looking. I was looking up into heaven. You say, dude, unless you're Elizabethan or something, you're old enough to be. But you, that wouldn't make any sense to us. So again, the Bible, when we understand this, means the sky. You know, the, the, the sky, you know, the, uh, the, you know the, which is the opposite. So heaven, the sky, is the source of God, is above. The enemy and things are below. Let's talk about the revelation to John, which so many people have been. Uh, let's talk about who the readers were. To understand the book, we need to understand something about its readers. That'll help us how, how to understand how it was written. There was a Christian community that was suddenly under siege. I mean, really, things were going bad. For, you know, this is the book of Revelation written at the end of the first century. And originally, you know, there was always opposition to some degree. But things were really getting significantly worse in some ways. One had to do with a uh, deterioration, sadly, of our relationship with Jews after the destruction of Jerusalem, which really goes down in, 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 in 130. Uh, but Things are getting tough, so it's under siege, a community under siege, saying, 
you know, we thought Christ is going to appear in the clouds at any moment or something. All we know, we're, we're really suffering. Things are not going well. The next thing, it is being systematically excluded from the life of the larger community. So there's a sense of alienation. I'm not a fact really can hurt people. It's hurting a lot of people in your generation now as, Christ, as America de-Christianizes. Is sometimes being a Christian puts you sort of an outlet. You know, people look upon you differently. You're suddenly not invited to things. In a sense, you're not, you're, you're considered something, they're not, they're not us. They won't understand type of thing. Okay. Also, something to understand, in the book of Revelation, one of the letters talks about these people who say they're Jews, but they're not. They're a synagogue of Satan. Here's what that really means. In the Roman world, Jews had a special legal claim that was really important. Romans thought religion was basically something you got from your parents and things. They really honored that. They thought it was only logical feel for people follow the customs of their ancestors. So the Romans, the Jews had a special privilege. They didn't have to worship the emperor because they thought it was a weird, weird religion. But they said, but it was religion. Religion actually comes from the Latin. The Romans thought the word came from the word for binding. It doesn't. They were wrong. But they thought the etymology was, you know, the customs from our ancestors. They thought it was only logical that families followed their family customs. So Jews were given special exemptions. They didn't have to violate their customs. So what was happening here at the end of the first century was this. When things started getting bad between Jews and Christians, Jews would go down to the Romans and say, these people are not Jews. We don't want to be confused. Also, they were they're going to get in trouble because you know they were proselytizing and things. So, but if Jews did that, that put Christians at immediate risk. Suddenly, you know, then you're like everybody else about paying tribute to the emperor. So you could there's a lot of bad blood. So when it talks there, he's saying, you say we're not Jews. We're the real Jews. We're the ones who fulfill that's what that's what they're getting at. The anger was over the fact that they were being declared inauthentic. People were saying, you're not really, you're not us, this is some cult, this isn't Judaism. Because at first everybody thought Christians were a different type of Jew. You know, a lot of Jewish sects, so it's just another Jewish sect. But by this time, people said, Jews were saying, you're not Jewish. Why? Because we abandoned the law of Moses. And to a Jew, that is Judaism, you know, for a rabbinic Jew. Just to get rid of the commandments of Moses is not to be Jewish. Okay, in their view. A Christian community challenged by compromise in its very midst. There are people who are just making compromises, compromise the faith, especially with sexual morality, in a world that was very much like ours in some ways about being free and easy with sex. We're saying, you, I have this against you. You tolerate this, this person. Remember in 1 Corinthians, you have things that this, the pagans would blush at. You have a man sleeping with a woman that is father's wife. <laughs> you, you can't do that. Okay. And the Christian community facing hopeless odds. I mean, there's this little group, often in the lowest classes. And later on, that's going to change. In the second century, we're going to have a whole lot of people who are going to come from higher classes. Christianity is really going to really diffuse at every level of society. But initially, our primary converts were, in fact, you know, the poor, you know, the poor, the, the lower class society were the primary people. So they really felt against hopeless odds. <coughs> so that's the group. So what's the key themes? The good news of the book of Revelation. Oh, by the way, all about good news. The book of Rev Revelation is meant to be a, um, what do you call it, a, a pep talk. Uh, it's, it's a pep talk. It's saying things are not what they appear to be. It looks like we're this tired group, everything's going against us. But you know, if you could actually open up the curtains, like if you, it's a cloudy day, but if you actually look behind those clouds, the sun is out there shining as bright as ever. And so the whole story of the book of, that's why we call it the apocalypse, the revel, is if you pull back the curtain, you'll see you have nothing to worry about. 
everything's on plan and the victory's actually already been won. That's the whole point of Revelation. <coughs> the lamb that was slain has already won the victory and he's now reigning. As the point, reigning at the right hand of God, he's receiving the same worship as God. The lamb triumphs through his wounds, not despite, that's why instead of playing down his wounds, you know, it used to be in, the, in, in times that uh, didn't have our thing about violence, is like if you had a dueling scar, that was a sign of, a sign of honor. What a guy, you've been in a duel. You know, if you had this big uh, scar across your face, it could show, you're, you must be a brave guy, you were actually in a duel and you came out alive. And so he said, this, this lamb, you know, the lamb that was slain, he has the marks, you know, he is the one who's like, he's not despite this. He's, those wounds were how he won the victory. Okay. And what shall we then do? And it says, so the idea of the book is focus on the big picture, like a plane passing above the clouds. Okay. Don't be scandalized. God hasn't lost control. Because why you're trying to be scandalized? Did I choose the wrong horse? You know, did I get the wrong memo? It's saying, no, everything is happening according to plan. Don't worry about it. Okay. The victory has already been won. And this is the main theme of Revelation. The victory has been won. It's not like we're waiting for the victory. It's already been won in the Lamb of the Slain, in the risen Christ. Now, why is this uh, special importance, this book? One thing is, it makes a critical contribution to understanding of the person of Christ. Because, by the way, it gives us a whole list, I'm going to go through an amazing number of descriptions of Christ, your titans for Christ. An amazing number. Okay. And we have repeated evidence of direct worship of the Lamb. You know, the lamb, the one on the throne, they worship, you know, they give him equal worship. You know, he is, he's with the Father, you know, getting equal worship with the Father. And also it made a huge contribution to our, um, to our, our worship life. The canticles that we have here are used in our worship, especially at Easter time. We look upon this as, a, you know, a book of triumph. We have seven acclamations for Christ. We'll go through those. And seven beatitudes. You know, just in the Gospel of Matthew, we have seven beatitudes that are also in this book. Seven acclamations, you know, John loves seven, seven acclamations. I do believe John wrote Apocalypse, by the way. Uh, now, what are some of the descriptions? There are four different sets of slides here. We have a lot of them. The faithful witness. And by the way, the witness of Christ here doesn't mean he's testifying. It's the testimony he gives is his act, as you know, he's a witness in the sense we're told elsewhere in the New Testament. It's his giving his life as a witness. It's like this. I'm telling you as a Christian, uh, you're, you're persecuting me. And I'm telling you, let's say we're in China or something, and we're going we're gonna to actually execute you if you don't give up your faith. The fact that I'm not afraid saying, well, then I'll be with the Lord today. You know, you must really believe it. That's the way. You must really, you know, no one, is, if you were just playing around, this would be a nice thing. I wish it were true. If you're playing church, you'd say, well, that's too, that's too high a price to pay. I'm not going to be tortured and die today. You know, because that'd be nice, but it's not that good. But if I really believe, I'm going to see Jesus in the minutes. We have that again and again for the martyrs. That really persuaded people. That was their witness. Their, you know, how they treated death and persecution was inexplicable in human terms. So Jesus, his cross and things, he is the faithful witness, the one who was faithful to God. Everything he did was faithful that he was truly who he claimed to be. The first born of the dead. And uh, here the notion is he's not just the only one. The, the resurrection of Christ isn't a single one, just him. Good for you. It's his triumph is that he's taking captivity captive. He had like in victory processions. Remember, a victorious conquering the ancient world would come and would have 
all of these people he'd freed as they'd taken behind him in procession. We say, he's the firstborn of the dead. You know, there are going to be endless, you know, procession of, of life after him. Ruler of kings on earth. The Christians took a lot of comfort in the idea of Christ being at the right hand of the Father. That he was actually now reigning. Not just he'll reign at the end of the world. Even now, he's in control of things. Okay. The one who loves us and is free and freed us from our sins by his blood who makes us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father. You know, he joins us in his priesthood. The Son of Man, the, claim to the, uh, the claims of the book of Daniel. First and last, it, everything is the story of Jesus, from creation itself all the way through. Everything's his story. That's why we say Alpha and Omega. The first and the last. The living one, I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. So he's the one who can release, you know, even death and Hades have nothing. He has the key. I can get, take it, get in and take out what I want. The one who holds the seven stars, which are the seven angels, you know. Even talk about God's angels are subject to his power. I'm the one who holds those angels in my hand. The one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. The one who died and came to life. The one who has the sharp two-edged sword. Okay. The son of God. The one who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze. Sometimes this comes as a shock to me. We're only on the third slide. That this is the book of Revelation is all about Jesus. And it's amazing when people read it and all they see is the, the beast and the things like this. Have you read the same book? The main character, like Acts of the Apostle, the key, the key player is the Holy Spirit. To read Revelation is all about risen Jesus. It goes on. I am he who searches mind and heart, who has seven spirits of God and the seven stars, holy one, true one, who has the key of David, the amen and faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation, the lion of the tribe of Judah. You say, oh, there can't be more. You jest. Okay. Root of David, lamb. We have everyone in the book of Revelation. Lamb. A lamb as though it had been slain, Meaning in the sense that ultimately it died but didn't die. You know, it came to this greater life. Lord, a male child who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. The word of God. King of kings and Lord of lords. Alpha and Omega, first and last. The bright morning star. So those are the various references we have. So the subject of the book of Revelation is easy. If somebody asks you, can you summarize the book of Revelation? Yeah, the, Jesus won the victory and reigns now with God. That's the subject. Everything else is commentary. He won the victory, you know, in his death and resurrection. Everything else is commentary. Now we have these two beautiful canticles we use in the church. The Song of the Lamb and the Song of the Redeemed. Here's the Song of the Lamb taken right from the Book of Common Prayer. We use it in one of our morning canticles. Splendor and honor and kingly power are yours by right, O Lord our God. For you created everything that is. By your will they were created and have their being. Etc. You go through here. It's just... Uh, an amazing canticle. We use that as a prayer in the church. A canticle means something basically like a psalm. Even though it's a book that's otherwise in prose, we call a canticle something. It's a psalm that's buried in, in, uh, in, in prose. Okay. And then, of course, we have the Song of the Redeemed. O rule of the universe, Lord God, great deeds are that you've done, surpassing human understanding. And we go through there. These are amazing. We've always used these in the church's liturgy.
And we have seven acclamations of Christ, which either have to be like we have the seven I am statements, the seven signs. So we have seven acclamations of Christ. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom of priests to God and our Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Okay, the, the next acclamation. Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And again, we love the fact that the Lamb gets equal play with God. You know, each time it's the same thing, and to the Lamb. Uh, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So those are our, uh, here our last we have. Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. So those are the seven acclamations of, of the book of Revelation. Then we have seven Beatitudes. You know, what makes us happy? Again, the word, I hate the word Beatitude. Blessed We've made it into a holy word. In Greek, it's not a holy word. It means happy in a very special, you know, so really happy in the sense of working just right. Round peg in a round hole. <laughs> You're right tool for the right job. He says, blessed is he who reads aloud the words of the prophecy, and blessed are those who hear, and who keep what is written therein, for the time is near. I like, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord henceforth. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. And look at that, so that's counterintuitive. He said, all of you who died in the persecution, it's not like you lucky ones who made it through. You weren't at home, you were out of town. He said, no, I'm telling you from now on, they're going to say, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. They were the blessed ones. He says, lo, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is he who's awake, keeping his garments, he may not go naked and be seen exposed. And these are all basically, um, uh, you know, advice for persecution. Here's the real way. If you want to see what's going to get you out happy here, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Blessed and holy is he who shares in the first resurrection. And behold, I'm coming soon. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and they may enter the city by the gates. So all of these blessed are for people facing persecution, saying, you know, ironically, the way to safety lies through, not around. This is counterintuitive. The way of safety is right down here. It's like, remember, the prophet, uh, the prophet Jeremiah said, you know, they said, look, we've got to do something. Why don't we try to go to Egypt or something? He said, no, no, no. I uh, said, what you need to do is go out and surrender. I promise you, God has given us word. If you surrender, that's the way to safety. I promise you the city won't be burned. You'll survive. You'll be fine. You'll pay a tribute. You know, this, the way of safety is, is right there. That's it. Oh, no, they went to Egypt and we know the rest. Okay. So what about all the details? Again, what we want to emphasize is don't lose sight of the main theme. The main figure is the risen Jesus, not the beast. Okay, the appropriate response is hope. When people get frightened reading the book of Revelation, they say, what book have you read? It's all about how the Lamb has won the victory. There is no question about the victory. It's been won already, and we're just having the cleanup operation. Everything that seems powerful is going down. <coughs> Uh, it's like people in occupied countries awaiting the end of the occupation. It's like what happened in Europe after the, the Allies landed on D-Day. It would take another year, 
almost it would take 11 months after D-Day to actually have the end of the war. But people who heard the news when it came is they knew it's over. Despite everything we've won, I mean, they have no chance with America now in and having the, and with right, there's no possible way they could win anymore. So it's a word is hope. So let's try some questions here. What does the word apocalypse mean? Revealing, you know, revelation. That's what we try to But revealing, again, revelation become a religious word. It means simply to pull back the curtain. That's a beautiful image, is to pull back the curtain and see what's behind it, to see what's really going on here. Okay, what are the similarities and differences between the four living creatures of Ezekiel and the four living creatures of Revelation? For example, let's talk about heads. So like, uh, they're the same animals. They're the same animals. What's different about them? In Ezekiel, what's really odd that's striking about them? Yeah, one creature of four faces. That's really going to stand out. Whereas in the book of Revelation, so what are they covered with in the book of Revelation we're not covered with in Ezekiel? Eyes. How many wings do they have? Six and four. Yeah, four in Ezekiel, because he's, he's, his image is the cherubim from under the, under the covenant. But Revelation wants to tie with the idea of these, if they're at that level, like close to God, the seraphim are the ones who are thought, you know, so he has the six wings of the seraphim. Okay, by the way, in the Bible it talks about seraphim having six wings and covering their feet. In case you don't know this, feet is a euphemism in Hebrew for our private parts. So it doesn't mean like the, like mercury, that's, you know, so, you know. <laughs> So, you know, when they talk about the six wings, why are they covering their feet? Uh, that's what they mean. Is that, you know, they're being bashful. Uh, okay, right, that's uh, the six wings. Okay. Uh, what does the number three and a half symbolize? A significant portion. Significant portion. By no means everything, but a significant portion. Why are there 24 elders in front of the throne? Right, so the fullness of, you know, the, the, the fullness of the new Israel, which encompasses the old terms of the Lord and Gentiles, the fullness of the new Israel, Jew and Gentile together, you know, the 24. Okay. Um, what does the color purple symbolize? Immorality. Yeah. Now, when Jesus is covered with purple, though, that's because they're Romans. That's something making fun of him being a king. But in apocalyptic literature, it's a sign of debauchery because it's associated with, also with wine, the color of wine. We call it red wine, but it looks purple, doesn't it? You know, so it's the color of wine and all that. Okay. What does a horn symbolize? Power. Power. Okay. And what's the main theme of Revelation? Christ has already won the victory. This is the victory lap, and... Salvation lies by staying on course. Don't leave course. That victory lies through the problem, not around it. Okay. So now what I like to do. Let's go back if we could here. Uh, we, have, we have a little time here. Actually, a good amount of time that we could do. I will, uh, first, I should ask you questions. I didn't want to not ask you questions. Do you have questions about when we talk about this? I want to really introduce you to the genre. I'd also know that people who do an actual study of the Book of Revelations. It's an amazing book. But uh, the, uh, I try to get the main themes. The reason we get lost is we don't know that, folks, 
don't miss the forest for the trees again, as this is all about why you look like you're paying it, but actually you're, you've won, you are, you're the winners here. Everything is the opposite of what it looks like. You know what it reminds me of is this. I, one of my dear colleagues for, for over 30 years was a woman named Barb Mello, who happily is still with us. Uh, and she still works where I used to work before I retired. And uh, Barb's husband was a jeweler. She helped him out of the jewelry shop. So she actually had expertise in jewelry. I mean, she really did the thing. Well, in my, in my business, we'd often go to, you know, business dinners and things. And I would be subject to a, an amazing commentary on the, on the jewelry people were wearing. And so one of the two things I'd have is she'd look at something I wouldn't even notice in a moment. She said, you know, you're looking $6,000 there. It's the real thing. She said, that's like 6000 that's, that's six grand. That's real. It's not at all pretentious. Then you'd see something really that looks amazing. Wow, she said, oh, that's, that's fake. She knew, she could tell, she had a jeweler's eye for these things. And I like that, said, look at that guy's watch, that's 10,000. I mean, I guess it's this color commentary. But she could see beyond things. People have these gaudy things, you look at them, wow, she asked, ah, it's costume. That's not real, the, you know, it's not, it's not the real thing. But other things, she's like, here's the real, that's real. What she's wearing, that thing right there, that's the real thing. And so it's really saying, here's the reality. Getting past everything, that's it, that's the real thing. Okay. Um, yeah, so in terms of some of the symbolism with just the numbers and objects, like obviously we see non-apocryphal type books in scripture where the number of seven and 14 and these things are invoked. Are they still pulling on that symbolism even if it's a book that's not symbolic in the same way that, you know, Revelation? Yeah, a lot of times numbers are, um, there are other numbers that are meaning that are not apocalyptic per se. For example, uh, in Genesis, uh, we have uh, we have the the nations they go through the nations of the world, and there are seventy in the list. Although the Greek Bible had seventy two, that's why the New Testament has seventy two in one of the Gospels. But the disciples going out because it's, it's clearly trying to match that number. Is that the, it represents the apostles are sent to Israel? Remember, you would just go to the tribe of Israel. He now sends seventy out to everybody. You know, you know this. You know, seventy out to the so set, and also the short of it, when you get to be my age, when you start getting that kind of. People aren't going to put 70 candles on your birthday cake, are they? What they'll often do is symbolize it like seven candles, you know, one for each decade. So the number seven also symbolizes the nation. So when we have the, when we have the feeding of the 5,000, the seven symbolizes the nations. That's in the feeding, where that's the, not the feeding, that's feeding the 4,000, because it's actually in pagan territory. So said, this is the nations, where Israel, we had five, which is one of the numbers of Israel. You know, uh, you don't want 12 rows out like too many, you know, so you, you basically have five rows of the five books of Moses. So the law, you know, Jewishness is the five books. The people of Israel is twelve. So there are a lot of numbers like that. One number we don't have a clue about, but I think I know the answer for it is, I'll give you a personal answer, is how many fish were in the net that they pulled out in the miraculous draft? 153. Scholars for centuries have tried to find any meaning because we don't put casual details in the New Testament. We just don't. So if no one at all from earliest fathers has ever been able to figure, they've tried, but they're all lame. They just don't work, clearly. Here's what I think is the thing. Sometimes one of the things that when police are interviewing people, as opposed to a story, is they will, they will remember, it's amazing the things people will remember that will really stay with them. And they'll say, uh, that's why I think, for coming to the example where Mark is writing his gospel for Romans, for people who don't have a clue about uh, Hebrew or Aramaic and He's writing for Romans. 
And Peter's talking about the, ra the raising of Lazarus. And Peter, because he's actually Mark's gospel is actually Peter's gospel. Mark was his secretary. Here's how Peter told the story. And he says, Tabitha Kumi, little girl arise. Why in the world did he use Aramaic words to people who don't have a clue? I think why? I think Peter told that story. Is he, sometimes that's the, the thing you remember. You still hear the words, the very words they're ringing with. I know once I, I had a brain surgery where they actually opened the skull and had to go in and take out tumor. And when I finally came back to the world, <laughs> is I remember the very thing, first thing I heard. Uh, somebody from church was there to see me. I remember the first words I remember was, it's Brad. The first words I will always remember, that's my dying day, the first word, it's Brad. You know, and it's sort of like saying it, it's, 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 sometimes it's a sign. I think Peter said, I'll still remember 150. I still remember the number, you know, with someone. I think it was, but normally, except for that, every number I can think of in the Bible has some meaning to it. <laughs> yeah. So, um, I grew up in the South where there was uh, just a lot of obsession over the meaning of Revelation and, um, and a lot of emphasis on the Book of Revelation being uh, basically a book that you could match up to um, real events, but it was describing one event. Whereas, like, I would hear other people say that the Book of Revelation is describing like cycles that happen in human history where the church undergoes persecution, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and then you know comes out of it and then undergoes it again. What are your opinions on? Well, here I'm describing one event. Well, let me put it um, uh, put it this way. This is personal. I want to always distinguish between personal and the teaching of the church. Okay. It seems to. Uh, it seems. First of all, the church is only our only eschatology in, in the Catholic faith, being false Catholic, is that Christ will come again to judge the living and the dead. In His kingdom, there will be no end. That's what we say in the creeds. Other things are legitimate opinions. But my view is, I, I don't think God would give us a revelation that doesn't tell us anything. In, the, I'm not, in this sense, that we couldn't read. The fact is, the fact that the church has never come to any agreement on this, ever at any time in its history, because nothing has changed this, to me is a strong argument that this is a more general term of simply saying, here's the story of our struggle with good and evil. And both in the immediate, which is the wrong, clearly the seven hills of Rome, you know, it's easy to be but otherwise, like as we have with, with the Lord Jesus, look what he does, and he has an apocalyptic in the Olivet Discourse. In the Olivet Discourse, Jesus clearly combines the destruction of the temple and the end of the world. He talks about the Son of Man coming in the clouds in glory, in the same thing he's talking. He combines two, and we know those aren't the same event. And sort of the people who wrote the Gospels, because they're writing them, you know, long afterwards, so they realize, uh, you know, or certainly, you know, uh, you know they, they realize this is not the same event. I say long after the temple is destroyed in 70 AD, but we, we certainly have uh, you know at least one of those I think is, is would be uh, probably written after that. But the the um, the point he's making is that ultimately this is going to happen. But what you're doing is already part of that. I think he's saying this is the eschaton. We've entered the eschaton with Christ and His resurrection. The whole world is changed. We are now in what the church is always called the last days. We are now, all of us have been, ever since then, in the last days. We're in a whole new stage of history, the last days. 
And by putting the both ends of it, he's trying to emphasize the unity of the last days. It's not like those are the real last days. No, all of us are living in this special time between. And I think we have that in Revelation. I think he's saying in the immediate thing, we're going to see this with Rome. The seven hills, the beast, etc. It's going to really have a major persecution so it's going to get very hard. But I think there's something deeper than that. It's going to be throughout the ages we're going to have these kind of things. But again, the idea we can look at precise numbers, get it. I don't see that because how come no one could agree? What's the value of giving, giving information in Revelation that no one can agree on what it means? I mean, why would God do that? Why would he give us Revelation that no one could interpret if he meant it in that sense that no one could do the dating precisely? It seems to me he's trying to say general things of, about these things will happen. This is the pattern you should expect of persecution, etc. These will happen. There will be a great fight against. When you think you're safe, you're going to have the Antichrist. You're going to have, when you think you're safe, and we're having some of that, you say right now, when you look at the kind of things we have uh, generically about the world turning anti-Christian in a lifetime. I, I'm old enough to have lived through the Christian, you know, where we still went through all this, and now the de-Christianization is staggering in my lifetime. And so saying, you know, the powers, you know, like this is, so I would tend to move that way. But if this were precise means, this is this ruler, etc., I don't see why he would give us things that were beyond anyone. Because in all these people who are greeted that way, they never agree. They're all radically at odds with each other. So I just would wonder why, to me, the evidence the church is not coming to understanding of that way would be evidence against it. Because I think the Bible was meant to be understood. And also, I don't think, you know, if Jesus said when we asked the time, he said, is no one's been given to know that time. Even the son, he says the son. So why do we think he would give us a mystery book to read to tell us that time when he says that's not what you should be concerned with? When Jesus asked questions like that, he said, pay attention to gate. Remember the one ran up to him and said, Lord, well, those have been saved be many. And he said, you strive to enter by the He said, why are you worrying about that? You strive to enter by the you know, you're, you know, dude, it's like somebody else worrying about dying or something. They say, look, at you, you're, you're on a cliff. You know, don't worry about him, worry about you. So I, I just think it's a distraction that for all of us who are living in the end times, all of us, the, the, work, the work of Revelation is true for every single one of Right now, we're facing the, the enemy, you know, with, you know, the image of that is the Antichrist, but a true enemy, an actual force of evil. But we know Christ is victorious. He's already won the victory. And we know that the way forward is not to pull back, but to move forward right into it. So when people ask us to deny our faith, you know, to join the, the chorus of the current theologies of the world, we have to say, even though it's going to cost me, can't go there. And that's what we talk about, like the number of the beast, is we can see that as beginning to be the point of what will happen. For example, I think we can see a time. This is not a political statement. I'm not a political guy at all. But I think about the entire West. It's not about America. It's the whole West. I think we can see a time where you can't be a doctor and you will perform abortions. I'll say that's simply a part of your training. You can't be a real doctor. You'll use it that Christians won't be able to be doctors. God forbid, but I think that could really happen. That they'll simply say, they'll use that as an excuse, you know, that if you don't do certain, if you're not willing. I would think as a manager, for example, I was a manager for you know, 20, 25 people for 30 years. I think the time I come where they say, well, if you belong to a church that doesn't do homosexuality, well, people knowing you're a bigot, as they would say, how could they, how could they trust you to really look after the best interests if you're their manager? It would be only reasonable they wouldn't feel safe with you, knowing the bigoted views, so that people couldn't be managers anymore. So I think we could have that kind of thing. I mean, that's not a prediction. But I think he's saying in any way we face things, you know, that we say, I have to am I willing to trim my sails for the world? Or do I say, Jesus' safety lies. And it's exactly the people who don't have the market based. 
one who said, well, I just, you know, became a nurse or something, or whatever, you know, I, yeah, I just did this, taking nothing about, you know, that I, I made this, this, uh, this thing. But Will, you know, he said, I'm not going to forget that those are the ones, you know, they'll, they'll have my own mark, the mark of, you know, the seal, you know, the lion. But it's all about victory, and, it, and when people get frightened of it, you completely miss the story. The story of the victory has been won. And he's saying the way, you know, he said, blessed are those who die in the Lord. And he's talking about martyrs and things. What a better fate, you know, that you'll be with that moment, you know, Christ is waiting like Stephen saw him in the heavens, you know, waiting, waiting to greet him. Uh, he said, that's, those are the ones who are lucky. Those are the blessed. The ones who aren't blessed are the survivors. <laughs> it's not how the world sees things. Like the, you know, the, in the Gospel of Matthew, the, the Beatitudes are best blessed are the losers, basically. You know, by worldly terms, those people are not the people we think of success. But that's where success lies. Those are the people, you know, God doesn't see like we see. Those are the people God really sees as winners. They're the happy ones, the poor in spirit, you know, the humble, these more of the kind, all of the people for justice. Those are the ones that aren't forgotten. All the ones who got, like he says to Lazarus, you know, you had your, you had your victory in this life. Lazarus didn't. <laughs> you chose this world. In retrospect, a poor choice. <laughs> Other thoughts about Revelation? Again, uh, beautiful, and you can really appreciate these books and realize it's meant to just be taken in. You know, if we often we destroy, we don't get the image at all because we're so busy looking, we're so close to the painting, we never see the actual image. We're just looking at these details, what is this thing? And the numbers are, you know, basically, once you know these meanings of the numbers, they, they're all like, yeah, we're going to mean by the faces power and these kind of things, yeah. Like Aslan finding out. I remember when my oldest son first figured out we read the Chronicles of Narnia too. Is Aslan Jesus? <laughs> Other questions about Revelation? I mean about apocalyptic, rather. So that's apocalyptic literature. And we see it again, primarily Daniel and Revelation, but Zechariah, we see it. use of really apocalyptic stuff there. And we see elements of Joel, Apocalyptic, some in Isaiah, Ezekiel. So there's a number. And Jesus of the Olive Discourses clearly have apocalyptic elements too. Okay, the Old Testament here, what I wanted to do was, let's see here. I wanted to go to Christ in the Psalms. It's where we left off last time. Or did we do some of the Psalms, I think? Uh, no, we didn't. We didn't, okay. Um, I can find out here, I'm almost there. I'll keep doing every time I'm back. I have two more in a row. If we have extra time, well, I just like you. This is, uh... By the way, the Psalm is the, <coughs> the book of Psalms is the book most quoted by the Lord. It has the most prophecies of Jesus of any book of the Bible. <coughs> So it really has a very, very special place for, for Christians. And the very first psalm, that's why I hate the inclusive translations, is in Hebrew, the word is a man. People say, well, that, the church ran with that and saying it wasn't just any man. That's true of people generally, but it also had a specific meaning. There is one particular man. So it is true it's meant for all of us in a way, and that's a value of, of that. But by, by choosing to pluralize it, you know, we're actually moving out from the, you know, if you've ever said, blessed is the person, you know, there's this one person. 
you know, so it was taken of Christ. And he talks about Jesus is the one, the only one who's kept the law perfectly. The, the cross is the tree planted by streams of water. So instead of being an emblem of death, it's a, it's a symbol, it's the, it's the tree of life. The cross has become the tree of life. You know, it's planted by streams of living water. Its fruit never ends. Its, its, its fruit is inexhaustible. Even its leaves uh, provide healing. Some, some plants, the leaves are used for medicine. So even the leaves aren't wasted. Everything about this brings life and healing. Oh, by the way, if you're unaware of it, <coughs> soteria, the Greek word for, for salvation, is the same word as healing. So a lot of times when you talk about healing and things, it's meant to be a play on words in the Gospels. Because talk about saving. Saving and healing are the same word in Greek. You know, that we can, we can miss. This is where it's supposed to. Oh, I know. What am I doing here? That's not going. Psalm 2, why do the nations rage? This is quoted again. Where it's emphasizing that that Christ, that the Messiah of Israel, you see, one people say, well, how come he was rejected? <coughs> you know, by, he's condemned by his own people in the Romans. He said, well, Psalm 2 said that this would happen. You know, the nations rage, but he's still be, the nations will rage. He won't be able to say, oh, let's, it's not going to be all Magi. Let's worship him. He's going to face opposition. So this is, again, quoted in Acts of the Apostles. Okay. Um, and it says, today I've begotten you. This sometimes bothers uh, uh, people uh, because some heretics tried to say, Rudocetus, that Jesus of Nazareth is just a guy minding his own business, so it's really good for you, but that somehow at his, at his baptism, the God came upon him and sort of used him, like God in a bod, you know, sort of you know, took, took control of him. And that's why he said, this day I've begotten you. No, I mean, the, you know, Christ was always God from his inception. So how do we understand today I've begotten you? We read the book of Hebrews. There's a biblical today because God is the eternal presence. And so he basically says, today, you know, this, I have begotten you. you know, the, uh, by the way, this, uh, so we have, and then we have all these, uh, one of the things we find in these Psalms, like the, the Psalms involve um, coronation, is in the ancient Jewish tradition, typical of the Middle East, it's not a slight, it's just a, it's a, it's a, it's a literary pattern. They really into hyperbole. They really go over the top. And what amazed people is, that's what Jews came to understand as well, is that this would someday be literally true. Some of these things we say at every coronation, you know, someday there will be someone this will actually be true about. This is all like a foreshadowing of we will really have a king of Israel that rules the world, etc. Okay. Next one we have is Psalm 8. Out of the mouths of babes and infants, Jesus quotes this on, uh, on, on uh, Palm Sunday. Uh, that all things are placed in a, what is it, that he placed all things under his feet we have that in the book of, of, of Hebrews okay um, and I've got the examples there 16 is really important because people ask well, where does it ever say that this Messiah has to be resurrected and so he says uh, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol now Sheol is the land of the, of the shades of the dead now notice, he doesn't say your soul won't see Sheol. It says, I won't leave you there. I won't abandon you to Sheol. And so their thing is, you, you, you will not see corruption. That means you'll, you, you know, you're not going to be left there. You'll be buried, you know, but you're not going to corrupt. But what happens in your buried? Your body begins to corrupt. So the point was, this is used again and again in the Acts of the Apostles by Peter to say this is the prediction of the resurrection. 
is that you know you would not you know who has this ever been who has ever been and that's where he said look it can't be about David because here's his tomb right here remember he says in that sermon he says I assure you if we open this tomb we're going to see a bunch of bones you know there's you know but he said that you know who is the one who would never would die but would never see corruption would die but would never see corruption and corruption again traditionally Jews begin on the fourth day that's why he emphasized the resurrection of Jesus on the third day. Okay, we have the air supply. Psalm 22, this I really want to emphasize with you because it's so often misunderstood. It's true that Christ really went through this horrific experience on the cross. You know, he took on our sins, you know, separation. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But, and he goes through all these horrible things that are happening to him. Those are all terribly true. However, the psalm is one piece. It's a story. How does the story finish? It's a prophecy. It says, after all these horrible things, when it looks, it's all over for this guy. Remember, they like dogs around him, they're dividing his clothes, all these things. It says, he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from it, but he's heard when he cried to him. So he says this has a happy ending. He said, the guy we're prophesying here, it doesn't end there. It appears that he's reached the nadir. It isn't true. Actually, the best is about to begin. And what's the best? Look at this for getting over the top. Oh, here are the first one with the details of the passions. These were the verses where we talk about, he trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him, how they mock Christ. They pierce my hands and my feet. They divide my garment among them. Now, look at the vindication. He says he hasn't forgotten it. This is unintelligible otherwise. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. Not only will be something people talk about, people will actually turn to the Lord because of this. All the families of the nations shall worship before you. Posterity shall serve him. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to people yet unborn. Talk about over the top. This is the psalm that begins, my God. So remember the psalm. Everybody knew the psalm. So to appeal to it wasn't saying, well, I guess God has given up on me. It's also a cry to hope. I'm like that guy. Yeah, I am that guy. But this is not the end of the story. What you're seeing here is God has heard his cry. He has not abandoned him. Because it's obviously, he has not abandoned him to He's seeing that, but he's not going to be left there. He'll have a victory. Everyone will turn to him and hope for him. So I think that's the way to understand so much. Otherwise, you know, so Christ truly had these sufferings. He bore our sins and moral sufferings of the cross. But it's not giving up. It was not despair because by putting in the terms of that psalm, any Jew knew what the end of that psalm was. This will not be the end. He's going to take this. This will not be the end of the story. This will be the great victory. So it's really putting the cross as being that great vindication of God. Uh, 41 has betrayal by a uh, close friend, by the Judas. 45 is a beautiful time the church loves. It's about the royal marriage. And it first of all celebrates the king, and then it celebrates his bride. The church saw this, the king, of course, is Christ, and the bride is the church. So we love reading out to Christ and his bride. You know, when Paul says, you know, I'll tell you what's a, a sign of this, he says, this mystery. It's Christ and his church, a husband and a wife. You know, this is the mystery. So what we have here is we have, you know, uh, a call. I'm sorry, we have, okay, a throwman in marriage, right? Uh, here we have a call for one oppressed by his enemies. Uh, this is all these things. They hated me without cause. These things apply to Jesus from Psalm 69. South 72 is another coronation psalm for kings of Israel that is literally true with Jesus. It says, may they fear you while the sun endures. Now imagine singing this for regular dudes. 
you know, <laughs> you know, wow, that's a good thing. As long as the moon throughout all generations, till the moon be no dominion from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. And this literally becomes true. So what was hyperbole, you know, becomes, you know, becomes true. Traditionally, by the way, 72 is where we get the idea of how, why do we talk about the Magi being kings? And the answer isn't because they're never described as kings or magi, is because there's a promise that these kings would come and offer him gifts. They said, well, that must be what they're talking about. So that's why we get the idea of the three kings, is from the three magi here. And with that, I have this 1030. So our time, our, my hour has come, okay? <laughs>